MNK Talk YA now presents A Torch Against the Night, the second book in the Ember in the Ashes series by Saba Tahir. MNK Talk YA. I'm Marissa Snyder. And I'm Katie Bradford. And this is our young adult fiction podcast. And this week we started the second book in the Ember and the Ashes quadrology by Saba Tahir. We started and finished A Torch Against the Night. We're still, I think, adjusting. And these books are pretty long anyways. So it feels like we did so much since we talked last. <laughs> Doing a whole book. I know. It's weird reading a whole book. But I also kind of like it because... I don't like stopping and waiting. <laughs> I know I was gonna say that's the hardest part or was the hardest part was making predictions and then having to wait to finish the book because I can I had to stop at the halfway point and then we had to record. I wouldn't be able to keep my story straight if I had read the whole thing and just like yeah tried to just discuss the first half. So yeah the waiting game was no fun. But yeah so what did you think of just before we even dive in all the specifics but what did you think of book two compared to book one? Like it more like it less? I think I liked it a little bit less. Mm-hmm. Um, I think part of the issue is that with first books, you are learning about a new world. Everything's exciting. Yep. You're learning about these new characters. You're intrigued by everything. <clears throat> and then in the second book, you kind of already have that background and that information kind of tucked away. So there isn't the same excitement of discovery. I think in this second book yep and I felt like the main goal I guess of this book was to get Darren out of prison mm-hmm. and it felt like to get there we had a lot of moments that seemed kind of repetitive like we were there was a lot of fighting almost getting caught yeah yeah like it was exciting up to a point and then I was like okay more fighting more escaping more fighting more escaping more sneaking around and then I I was a little bit anxious to finally get to the prison and escape and like get Darren out of there what did you think about the fact that in book one we had two perspectives that we switched back and forth between and book three we added Helena's perspective but still kept Leia and Elias's I think they each had their own distinct voice and I appreciated each perspective, but because there was like longer gaps when I'd revisit a character, I think that also made it feel almost slower to me than book one. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the pace was definitely slower. It wasn't the same breakneck, like we had all those cool trials in the first book that you were anticipating. I actually really liked the addition of Helena's perspective. I really liked the practice of starting with two narratives and then introducing more as the series progresses because I think just it's such a good way to keep your secondary characters fresh and to like learn more about them and we know Helena is like my favorite character by far (laughs) in this book like I almost if we had to just stick with two perspectives I would have rather had Helena and Elias and like lost Leia's perspective so (laughs) I loved hearing about her back at the home front and all the stuff she went through oh my gosh yeah no (sighs) I I agree she was definitely a, a good addition and I like when multiple perspectives are done well and I did feel like each voice was unique like I felt good about each of the three voices each of the three perspectives we were getting I felt like they each added something different even even though like you take a break from one particular storyline, it did help kind of connect the world for me to be kind of jumping mm-hmm. from, you know, what was happening in, in the Empire versus what was happening in the prison. I did appreciate, I thought it was done well. Yeah, and I think that it was nice that we had a little break from the get Darren out of prison plot. Mm-hmm. Like, I really enjoy subplots in books. Like, I think sometimes the subplot is, like, sometimes more exciting than the main plot. And I felt that way with this book, too. Like, every time we were back at Blackcliff, or, well, Blackcliff's destroyed, but back at the Empire, and we were learning more about, like, the coup that was happening and all the political intrigue, that's where I enjoyed myself the most, I would say. That's interesting to me, because I also love that, but I always like the political intrigue. And sometimes yeah. you're, like, not into that part. So I I find it fascinating that that was one of your favorite things about this one. We switched roles. (laughs) Should we talk a little bit about some new characters that we got in this book? Yeah, we had some new people. Yeah, we have, first of all, we have Harper, who is 
One of the black guards. Yeah, he's one of the black guards that is under, technically under Helena, but a bit of a weird wrench as he was also <laughs> her torturer. <laughs> he was interrogating her to learn where Elias went. So right off the bat, like, I loved that setup where it's like yeah. he was torturing her and then all of a sudden he's working under her and... Uh, the commandant sent him essentially to spy on everyone knows like it's it's common knowledge right like Marcus is like you're gonna have a spy Helena knows it's him like he (laughs) knows she knows and I kind of love that it was so upfront but also like they just had to deal with it and he what he was probably my most one of my more interesting side characters this book because we didn't fully get his perspective, but as him and Helena start to almost trust each other and like get a little bit closer and we like learn more about him and then he does start to like switch alliances or at least not be completely loyal to the Commandant and seeing that progression, I thought was really interesting and I, I hope we get more, I'm sure we will, but get more of his story in the following two books. I hope so too, especially because he like he started off as the bad guy right like the quote-unquote bad guy like he's the torturer he's the uh spy he is there to like mess up Helena's life and he's friends with like the two evil people or like he seems like he's connected with Marcus and the commandant who are like the two two of the worst people we've read about in a while (laughs) absolutely but then as you see him working with Helena you kind of learn that there's a deeper side to him and he is more complex and the revelation at the end was great where he reveals that he only accepted the commandant's mission because he wanted to find Elias and learn more about Elias because they have the same father. Which I have so many questions about still. That was like such a big bomb at the end. And I, that we have to get more of him obviously next time because he knows oh, who their yeah. father is and Elias doesn't. And the commandant like talked to him about the father, at least somewhat. Well, he doesn't know who the father is. He I knows thought he had a that, name. Did he not have a name? Oh, maybe he has a name. I, the commandant just told him a little bit and he knows that his father was kind and didn't fit the mold at Blackcliff. So yep. you can kind of see who Elias at least takes after. <laughs> and again, that's interesting because uh, the Commandant has never told Elias anything about the father. And the little bit that we heard kind of right before he was supposed to be executed in the last book made it seem like his father was actually a really bad guy. Like I was expecting some kind of like abuse power store I don't know like something really terrible from the father but then the story we're hearing from Harper so far seems to be that the commandant told him that he was a good guy well I actually thought that the way the commandant worded that discussion with Elias was really interesting because she said something like your father turned out to be such a disappointment to me oh and so that's where I was like I wasn't quite sure if it was an abuse situation or if he just let her down in some that's very fair. profound way and I mean now maybe totally by being good <laughs> yeah by being exactly like <laughs> how would you let down the commandant oh by being a decent person <laughs> Not torturing innocent children. Children. Yeah. <laughs> or something. Ah, oh, that is cool. Um, so yeah, I know. I'm super excited to learn about that. And also, I have a prediction to make. Okay. I think that Helena and Harper are going to end up being a romantic pairing. I agree and hope we see that as well. It is a little bit weird that she is in love with Elias and she's going to end up with Elias's half-brother. <laughs> Like, if she can't have Elias, like, his brother is the next best thing. Like, that's a little weird, but... I feel like it would be weirder if they were close. Like, they, yeah, Elias yeah. doesn't even know he has a half-brother as far as we know, right? Exactly. Yeah. I'm, I'm ultimately fine with it because I think it's not, like, insta-love at all. It's the mm-hmm. enemies to lovers yep. trope, which you know is my favorite romantic trope of all of them. <laughs> and even though we both kind of sense something's coming, it hasn't really started yet. And, like, I feel like she's properly moving on, mourning... She's getting, it's not like she's just switching her affection because he's there. Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, Helena has much bigger things to worry about than oh romance at this point, I feel. Man, I, these <sighs> augers and their predictions is like totally why I never trust prophecies and stuff, but what Elias heard in the first book and what Helena heard, what Helena heard in this book from Kane and how things end up being true, but like you think it means something different. Oh, it stresses me out so much, but I love it. <laughs> 
I honestly like didn't think Marcus was gonna slaughter her whole family. I thought it was gonna be him bluffing a little bit. And then when she mentioned the Agar Kane warned her that she would like emerge strong, but first she'd have to be broken. And as soon as I remembered that, I was like, oh no, I know what's gonna happen. And but still, it was so shocking. I actually thought it would be the opposite. I thought it would be only her close sister would be killed or something. Not mm. only her close sister would survive. And now she's freaking married to Marcus, which is awful. But yeah, gosh. But also, I hope we get more of her story in the next book or two as well, because she's in a really interesting position, and I feel like there's a lot more to her, too, than we've Mm -hmm. seen so far. It was just so painful, too, that, like, Helena came to warn Marcus about the coup. She was like, the Commandant is planning a coup. Like, I came here to save you. And he was like, yeah, the only reason I killed your family was because you announced it publicly and made me look weak, and I already knew about the coup, so you didn't achieve anything. Oh, that was, like, heartbreaking. Yeah. It's like, well, what if you didn't know about the coup? Should I have just kept it to myself or waited till you had a free moment? Like, come on, dude. And he is, he's losing it. I don't know how much of it is just the fact that his brother is dead, how much of it is what he was working with the Nightbringer on. And, you know, we saw some of that in book one, how much of it is unrelated, but something is talking to him, whether it's a spirit or in his mind or what, but he's starting to lose it a little bit. Um, yeah. Speaking of spirits, (laughs) (laughs) should we talk about the new character, Soulcatcher? Yeah. Pretty early on in their escape, the Commandant stabs with poison her son, and so he's been seizing, and every time he's, like, out of it, he's appearing in the waiting place, which Mm -hmm. is where souls who are dead need to find peace to cross over. And he's like, why am I here? Because I'm not dead yet, but it's because he's slowly dying from the poison. I love that whole idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was a nice set up and like a nice way to like introduce the waiting place in a way that was believable Mm -hmm. like he's hovering between life and death this whole time yeah but who is she or she she's gendered she is a djinn yeah Mm -hmm. and she she's the traitor djinn was it she exactly she was the djinn who betrayed her kind and and i hope we get more details around that story because we heard the like legend from cook and she started to reveal some more context around it so we could connect it but i'm still curious what she like the betrayal there's got to be more to that story, right? About like what happened between her and the Nightbringer? Maybe not. Yeah, I mean, I would think so. I mean, I hope she, so. yeah, so she is paying for her crimes by escorting souls back and forth between the living and the dead. She was a djinn who betrayed her people. And how did she betray her people again? <laughs> Something about the sword, the star? So way back in the day, this is partially referencing the story Cook told. Way back in the day, the scholars wanted more and more knowledge and they wanted it from the djinn because the djinn were like the smartest spirit world people or whatever and then I think they got too greedy and I don't know exactly what happened but I think she's and I'm curious if she like fell in love with a human or if the djinn were doing something bad and she actually helped the human or like I sort of feel like her betrayal maybe wasn't purely evil but who knows Mm -hmm. but she did something that gave the scholars the ability to like trap or capture all the djinn and the only one who escaped was the nightbringer so he's been spending the last thousand years or however long this has been trying to get revenge specifically on the scholars but kind of on humans as a whole and her punishment for like betraying them I guess was to to take on this role of soul catcher and she's like chained to this forest and living this lonely That's life now. right. And the scholars had the weapon that trapped the djinn, but it yep. exploded and now the Nightbringer is trying to collect all the pieces of this weapon so he so can, he can release it. them. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Okay. And we find out Keenan is the Nightbringer. <laughs> Another big shock. Oh, boy. There were some clues throughout this book. I was starting to sense he wasn't who he said he was. Something evil was going on. I thought maybe he was working with the Nightbringer. I did not expect him to be the Nightbringer until very close to when that was revealed. And that was great because I felt the same way. Even in book one, I was like, "Mm, I don't really trust Keenan. And I didn't trust him because I knew the resistance itself wasn't super trustworthy. Mm -hmm. And then I I feel the same way. I thought he was working with the Nightbringer. And when he was like, no, actually, we're one and the same. That was, yeah. I mean, that was a great, a great way to like take it one step further and surprise everyone. And I loved how that was all connected, like as we see parts of like where the warden is torturing her brother and we have been assuming this whole time it's because he knows how to make the steel that will like allow the scholars to fight back. Mm -hmm. And he hasn't been asked a single question about that. All the questions have been about his sister because the Nightbringer like controls or is master of the warden or like, I just loved how everything kind of slowly revealed itself 
and I thought that was really well done. Mm-hmm, agreed. Because and he wanted Leia because she has the amulet, right? Which is the piece of the sword. Yeah, and then we find out he was the one who betrayed her parents because yep. even in his role as Keenan, he was trying to get close to the mom so that she would give him the armlet. But when she gave it to her daughter instead, he like got mad, turned them in, and then like made up a new plan. The thing that I think is super extra interesting is that in order to access the amulet, in order to be able to accept it, the Nightbringer had to love Leia and Leia had to love him in return. Mm-hmm. And I thought that just made it so much messier in a great way. Yeah. Because, like, he couldn't just steal it. You know, that that would have been easy. But the amulet can only pass between two people who, like, genuinely care about each other. And that has got to come back around, right? Like, we've got to see the Nightbringer and, like, some emotion for her still exists or something, right? I would think so. And that's why I, I loved it. Because it's not like Keenan just play acted that he loved her or pretended. Yeah. Like, he legit did. It wasn't all an act. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad she recognizes that she did too, because I mean, obviously yeah. she's super pissed and like mad at herself and mad at him and like whatever, but she does still recognize that there was true love there also. Yeah, I agree. But uh, returning quickly back to Soulcatcher, because this was another huge revelation. So we learned that she has been kind of luring Elias to the waiting place because she wanted Elias to take her place. Mm-hmm. But she kind of gets cold feet at the end because she kind of she likes him. <laughs> yeah, and she and she just kind of realizes like what a good person he is, and I think she's just she couldn't bring herself to put that burden on him. And I loved. I thought this was so clever and so well done. She she tells Elias that all of the souls that Elias killed moved on. Mm-hmm. And it was because he mourned them. And because he was so you know overcome with guilt about killing them Mm -hmm. and i just love that idea of like even though he murdered his friends and is not forgiving himself for that like the souls themselves moved on because they realized that he repented for that and was mourning them and i just thought that was such a beautiful idea and honestly i think it's kind of a cool opportunity for him not just because he got to like stay alive to finish his mission but he's to your point like killed and felt guilty and mourned all these people for so long not that it'll make up for anything he's done in the past but I do feel like he at least partially thinks this is a way to kind of build up some good deeds to help mm-hmm. people move on, to have this role, to take on this responsibility. And who knows if it'll be a thousand years or what's going to happen in the next couple books. But mm-hmm. it was a really cool way to keep him around with the poison, how that all played out. It was a really, I, I just, I, I think all the pieces connected in a really beautiful way, to be honest. I agree. And I, I liked that almost all of the characters are neither good or bad. Or mm-hmm. bad. Like, so sure at the end, she didn't want Elias to take on her role, but he did because he died, mm-hmm. which I, I like, didn't expect that. I was like, oh, no, he's actually dead now. <laughs> and it was the only way he could return, you know, to finish the mission and to get Darren out. So he, like, made that choice to be like, no, I'm going to take on your role because I have to get back. Like, I can't be dead. I just can't. <laughs> there was a moment when I thought Helena was going to, like, sing cure him. And if that mm-hmm. had happened, I think I would have been disappointed. I think this is so much better that he actually died, but he's still around. I'm, like, really pleased with how that worked. I agree. Also, I love that Cook is back and, like, a badass, and I cannot wait to get more of her backstory. I am, she's, like, the person I'm most curious about still. Oh, okay. Yeah, I'm interested in her, too. She seems like a pretty cool ally, and I think it's it's kind of funny how she keeps flitting in and out and just, like, dropping these huge information bombs, you know, like... (laughs) And, like, what was she doing? Like, if she can do all of this stuff, what was she doing with the commandant for all that time? And what would, like, I mean, she got mad about the resistance and she did know some stuff, but she also, I I just, there's got to be so much more to her story and I'm so interested to get more of that. I agree. I'm also a little bit sad, though, because there's one person whose story we're not going to get more of, and that's Izzy. Yes, (sighs) mixed feelings, though, because you know I always like it when everyone's getting murdered and the whole group (laughs) survives it makes me upset so yeah that's true it was sad but I thought it was well done and I even liked that we got that scene with her at the end um not at the end but crossing over at the end of her life yeah and she like you know I died doing defending someone and like I'm at peace I just that was a great way don't take that away from me yeah Yeah. that was beautifully done too yeah I agree and then there's I'm trying to think of other other new characters we have 
all the tribes people. So the tribes people, Afya. Mm-hmm. And I guess technically we had seen her in book one. She was the one that he had danced with and gotten the favor token for. Mm-hmm. And she's another one of those like not quite good, not quite bad people, right? Like she does have honor, but she also kind of tricked him and like brought his family into the escape plan which he was trying to avoid i don't know she's also i think interesting to me i love these like strong women she's like the only female chieftain of the tribes people or whatever Mm -hmm. or the only one in like 200 years and calls things like she sees them and i don't she's just kind of a fun character i really have enjoyed getting to know her more yeah and she's ruthless too Mm -hmm. like she's when she has a goal, she sticks to it no matter what. Like, even when Leia was asking her to, like, give Harbor to those scholars, and she was just like, no, we're not doing it. I'm sorry, I know. But she originally was just like, I cannot risk my mission to help people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I kind of, I think, yeah, she's another complex character where she's, like, not good but not bad, and she just is, she's very ruthless, (laughs) yeah. I like how she came back, though, too. I would have accepted if she didn't but I'm glad that we saw her again I totally agree and I'm sure I feel like we'll see her in the next book too yeah so where do you think we go from here oh my goodness um (laughs) where do we go I think that the Nightbringer is going to try and collect more amulets I don't know where they are though like part of me like is really curious to know like why some people have special powers and if they're linked to the amulet because Leia all of a sudden is invisible which I don't know where that came from. It's from when they were escaping in that like effort or whatever it was called touched her. You know how they said like when you interact with the spirit world, something that's like latent mm. can be called forth. I think that's when it happened. You're right. I forgot about that. So I think, I think she and her brother, since her brother did finally wake up at the end, we did get Darren out, ulti- which is what we've been trying to do for two books, <laughs> I did. guess. This one was focused just on the mechanics of getting him out, but we did. So I do feel like now that he's awake, the two of them at least... Because Elias can't leave the forest, right? Well, I think he can, but he can't stray far from it. Um, And he also can't love Leia, which I'm, I don't know. I'm not like super into their love story just because it's like, oh, now the spirits don't like it when we're together. And I don't know. I didn't like in this book how Elias learned that being close to Leia would like hurt her or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like Soulcatcher tells him that. She's like, stay away from Leia. And so he like purposely distanced himself from Leia and that trope of like I care for you so deeply that I can't be with you I just don't like personally maybe it's because I just watched Bridgerton and that's like the entire (laughs) show (laughs) but I find that very irritating (laughs) I agree it's not my favorite what I did like about this book though is I feel like he wasn't keeping it a secret he like communicated they were both aware not in agreement but they were both aware of what and why he was doing it not just like assuming because I feel like sometimes it's like oh I'm not gonna tell I'm just gonna push you away because that's what I think I should do which doesn't make it that much better but made it a little bit better in my mind and it felt really true to his character because of all of the times he's hurt people who have gotten close to him or like the people who have suffered because they've been close to him so it felt like a normal character development step for him instead of just like a random thing because we saw him like struggling throughout the whole first book and whatnot with people who suffered because he cared for them and it felt more like a look at the this world that they grew up in especially at black cliff and like the impact of that in some ways to me than like a true character choice but i agree it's not my favorite thing at all (laughs) i almost laughed because in the beginning there was a part where elias is like unconscious and he was trying to like describe what it was he liked about leia and he was like it's not just because you're pretty like there's lots of pretty girls i like you because you're you're like me and i almost laughed because i that was like your comment from the last book you were like i don't understand why he likes her like does he just like her because she's pretty and I felt like Elias was like reaching out to you and like trying to explain (laughs) there's more to it Katie yeah (laughs) but I also don't really still understand that because like what does it mean to be like him you're not a ruthless killer who just does what you're told like I feel like that's kind of most people (laughs) Um, And also, like, she was a slave and he was a soldier. So, you know, she didn't have any reason to be, like, a ruthless, cold-hearted murderer like he did. I just, I don't know. I didn't really buy his explanation. (laughs) But also, she has put herself in danger to try to help people. I think there are some other things, but I do agree with what you're saying. And I like that they do seem to communicate well amongst each other, which is usually my biggest complaint in books, especially YA books, when, like, the characters don't 
don't tell each other things. And at least the two of them are communicating pretty openly at this point. But I don't feel like we saw enough of the like flirting or like courtship. Yeah. Again, it's it's it almost felt more like insta attraction a little bit or, you know, just like, mm-hmm. oh, there's this spark. But I wanted to see more of them like falling for each other instead of just like, oh, yeah, there's he's special. She's special. <laughs> No, I agree. But yeah, so I think her and her brother go with the scholars to the other side of the forest. So which land is that? I don't even know. I need to look at the map again. Because didn't all the scholars leave to one of the other non-Empire lands? Marin or something like I that? I think so, because they were all being exterminated by the by the commandant. Oh my goodness, that was terrible. Mm. So I think at least to start, they're going to head over that way and maybe Dar- maybe we'll get Darren's perspective. I'm curious to get to know Ooh. him more too. Me too. Because I think they could both be really big leaders in the scholar movement and like we know he has the metal work background or whatever we're calling it. I think Helena's story is going to continue to be interesting because she's now gotten permission from Marcus to like get revenge on the commandant but she's also still her and Marcus aren't exactly good and her sister's married like her life's going to continue to be complicated I think in a really interesting way but I have no idea what happens with Elias. Is he just what does he do in the forest now? Yes maybe he can leave but he can't be gone (laughs) far or for long from what I understand now. We still have the Nightbringer out there. We have to go get him or do something there. I don't know. He's got to have a goal. He's got to have some kind of goal other than just like ushering spirits because his goal was to help Leia get Darren and now that Darren's safe, what's he going to do? I don't know. Yeah. I want to learn more about Taz, the little boy from the prison too. Oh yeah, he's a good character. Yeah, he was cute. And I love how he loved Elias and just like, it was like such a good opportunity for him to like be caring and if anything, their relationship to me made your heart feel good than like the romantic relationship between him and Leia. I agree. I totally agree. I am kind of sad though. The warden was a fun bad guy. I know. I was kind of disappointed when he died. I mean like I, I he was despicable but yeah. he kind of had that like evil scientist yes. hint to him which you know I love. But I mean he was disgusting. Like he was experimenting on people and no. like why? What were his experiments? He was so terrible. But I also loved how he like bartered in secrets and I just felt like there could have been even more. He didn't feel, I mean, he felt purely evil in the sense that there was nothing necessarily redeeming about him. But I sort of feel like the Commandant is evil just to be evil. I feel like, kind of like your point, the mad scientist stuff. He's like evil because he's curious and, and has no yeah. empathy or something. <laughs> uh, but like, what were his experiments? Like, what was he? I don't know. I don't know either. And I don't know if we will ever know unless Taz reveal something maybe he will or if the nightbringer i mean he was working for the nightbringer so maybe some more of that stuff will come out and i'm curious how harper and elias's dad if we meet no he's dead Uh, right how he ties it i uh, I don't know i have no idea okay i guess i don't know but yeah if we meet his dad or we at least get more stories about his dad i feel like that has to play into this somehow Mm -hmm. how do we stop the nightbringer if he's not after one of our three main characters someone else has some gold i'm excited for the showdown between helena and the commandant that's gonna be mm-hmm. amazing. Um, did you have a favorite scene? Ooh, that's a good question. I don't know. I just thought of mine. Matures. <laughs> I really liked when when Helena's father invites the head Jan Rufus <laughs> over to his house, and she acts like this flighty little girl, and her father is like pandering to her, and he's like, "Yes, they're there, darling." Like, oh, stupid woman, and then she like freaking ambushes him and rounds yep. up all the traitors and then Marcus like throws Rufus off a cliff I just I thought it was like a good scene of where she took advantage of people always underestimating her which she always says she's like why does everyone always underestimate me and so I just kind of I don't know I like to see that she used that and got some serious revenge I also loved how she was like so uncomfortable wearing a dress because she hadn't worn one since she was four years Mm -hmm. old or something yeah (laughs) that was a good scene I think probably my favorite or one of my favorites at least was when we were in the Nur or whatever the tribesmen gathering and the foster mom got up to tell the story and the rioting starting but just because all of our main characters were like kind of in the same place like I think it could be cool as a visual and I love the idea of a mother's love and the power of story mm-hmm. and like the narrative that she told Mamie, Mamie right? Yeah and that like intentional revolt that was ha- I don't know I just feel like there was something really cool there. That was a good scene. There's just a lot of things I wouldn't necessarily want to see. A lot of torture, a lot of... Oof. 
close calls. You know what this book reminds me of? What? A lot. And I, I was trying to pinpoint it on the first book. It reminds me so much of the Red Rising series by hmm. Pierce Brown. Just with all the... I think it's because there's a lot of like ancient Rome references, which like a lot of his characters' names were Roman. Mm-hmm. And just the emphasis on, you know, slavery, rape, torture, violence class warfare like all of these horrible horrible meaty subjects that neither of them really shy away from you know Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. I think you see a lot of especially YA authors who kind of are hesitant to go down those paths because they are so triggering and so awful but I feel like Pierce Brown and Sabo Tahir are just like no we're 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 doing it like we're not shying away from this and yeah it is hard to read at some times I think but I don't think it feels like violence for violence sake at, at any point I was gonna say never night is like taking that even a step further and it's not quite yeah that far right it's not quite there yeah. and it's not I don't even think it's as bad as red rising I think it's dancing right alongside it but um not as bad. I think if we had spent more time at the school <laughs> Even though I know, like, the real... But, like, the school, I think, also did just really feel like the beginning of Red Rising a little bit. Yeah, totally. I like that analogy. Did you do any research this week? Okay, so I was really intrigued by... This is, like, very tangential research. But the the scene where Elias is talking with Taz about how they both have nightmares. And then Elias is sort of reflecting on how he also knows his mom has nightmares. And just how... Like, this kind of innocent boy who's, like, seen all this horror, this, like, terrible woman who's seen all this horror, and him who's seen all this horror, their common experience is the nightmare. And so I was looking up what are common nightmares. And we may have even talked about this before, but um, I'm, like, fascinated by dreams and what they mean, and I have some recurring dreams, too. Wait, tell me your recurring dreams. Tell me (sighs) your recurring nightmares. I don't even know if mine are nightmares. I have this one, I may have told you about this before, where, like, I'm hiding either from spider man or with spider-man depending on (laughs) the situation in a junkyard and we're hiding in cars and this is like pre-james i've been having this dream for years and years so it's not like a car thing it's always like a junkyard full of cars and i'm like climbing through back seats and like hiding in trunks and like either spider-man's out to get me or spider-man's helping me and sometimes i can't remember which so it's just stressful (laughs) um i also this might be like a pregnancy thing but i've been having reoccurring dreams where i can't find a bathroom recently Or, or like the bathroom's really public and like no one else seems to care. And I'm like, wait, where's the stall door or something? I don't know about that. Teeth falling out it happens to me a lot. What about you? Oh yeah, I have I have dreams a lot where my teeth are falling out and it's horrifying, but also that like my mouth doesn't close fully because I either I either have no teeth or sometimes I have too many teeth and I can't like close my mouth because of them. Ooh. But my okay, I, I don't have a super often reoccurring dream, but my sister does. <laughs> my sister has so many reoccurring nightmares and some of them are so funny. Like, okay, she has one where she thinks that someone has broken into her house uh-huh. and she goes downstairs to to find out who the intruder is and it's it's Jack White from the White Stripes and he's going through her makeup box and has like painted all of his face with all of her makeup. Oh my goodness, that's hilarious. And then she has another one that is um, about her dog. So she has a little chihuahua and she has a dream that Moose, her dog, comes up to her. But instead of Moose, it's like this disgusting, scaly, insect, reptile-like Ooh. creature. And she freaks out and like runs away from him. And then her dog comes back and it and it looks like him again. Like it looks like uh, his, his, it's a little chihuahua. And so she picks him up and she starts cuddling him, but then she looks down and realizes that it's the ugly creature just wearing a chihuahua suit. Oh my goodness. And he has like Moose's skin on him and she can see like the scales and like the creepy crawlies like peeking out from underneath his skin. Isn't that like the the worst thing you've ever heard? That is terrifying. (laughs) And I kind of love how her mind like is like, oh no, don't worry. You can pick me up. I'm your dog. And then... I know. <laughs> oh. Anyway, tell me more about nightmares. So the most frequent nightmare probably isn't shocking is falling mm. and closely followed by being chased. I've never had a falling dream. I have a lot of dreams. I don't 
know where I am going. I can climb up into the air, kind of like stairs, but there's no stairs there. And then I like have this moment where I'm like, wait, I shouldn't be able to do this. But I don't actually fall mm. in my dream. But mm. I like feel like, I don't know, something happening. I don't know. Um, feeling lost, feeling trapped, being attacked, missing an important event are all pretty popular. Mm. Teeth falling out is only 34.3%, which I had heard somewhere that that was way more common. Yeah, I would have thought. And I always thought that was so weird because I thought it was such a random dream until I found out that it's pretty common and that made me feel a little bit better. But dreams about your teeth falling out supposedly mean that you're like really anxious about either how you're being perceived or your appearance. Mm. or just like things being out of your control so I read that it's um about times of transition like if you're going through a period of transition that's really unsettling you have dreams like that yeah like when things are out of your control or you're feeling powerless well even but even like because uh when you're a child your teeth fall out and that's like kind of when you transition it's like usually around like when you start school Hmm. and it's like a big tradition and it's kind of like end of babyhood beginning of childhood I don't know that's what I read I like that Mm-hmm. Let's see. Unable to find a toilet was on the list. And I guess having trouble finding a toilet means you may be finding it difficult to express your needs in a certain situation. I think it might just Ooh. mean that I have to get up and pee more often in the middle of the night, but maybe not. Probably. <laughs> uh, you may feel that you're lacking time for personal issues and need more privacy, self-care, or self-expression. Mm-hmm. Well, that was kind of interesting. Is there one about realizing that you didn't pass a subject in high school and like your degree is invalid or your college degree is invalid? Because I get that one a lot. Wait, what class? you always miss oh it's always like biology <laughs> or, or a math class mine's always yeah I have the one where like I forgot to drop a class but I haven't been going and the test is today yes yes yeah and I also have the one where I didn't do my summer math packet and it's my high school math teacher asking for it the first day of school and I didn't do it and I'm friends with her like to this day so it's just funny I'm like I have a nightmare about you at least once a year (laughs) (laughs) um so it was on the list but I didn't not high enough for me to get a lot of reason why we have that dream unless oh I'm prepared for an exam exam dreams can be so real that we actually wake up convinced we just failed an important test yep at least one in every five people will experience an exam dream in their lives exam dreams are a reflection of your lack of confidence and inability to advance to the next stage in your life. Hmm, That explains a lot. (laughs) (laughs) I get that dream a lot. (laughs) Oh, out of control vehicles. I have that dream a lot too, where I can't (gasps) break the car. Me too. That's, I hate that. That's the worst. Naked in public doesn't happen to me a lot, but sometimes I realize I'm in my pajamas or something like sometimes I'm dressed inappropriately, but I'm very rarely that I can think of naked in my dreams. I've never had that dream. No. Being late. I do feel like there's times where you can't, like you feel like you're walking really fast, but you're like not really making any progress or something. Do you ever get that feeling? I have that dream a lot. Or like, or like I can't move my legs or my legs aren't working properly or I, yeah, I'm trying to move, but I can't. I thought this was interesting. Roughly 55% of people actually have a nightmare that includes death. And I had heard once like a long time ago, so I don't know if this is true or not, but you can't actually dream about dying because you can only dream about about things that you've somewhat experienced or something like that. Oh. And so I used to always be afraid if I dreamt that I died that I would actually die, but I don't think that's actually how it works. That's like an urban <laughs> legend, I think. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then I saw, what do like nightmares between men and women, like how do they differ? So a loved one hmm. passing is more common in women, but attacking someone is more common in men. Hmm. As is being attacked, which I thought was kind of interesting. Oh, that is interesting. Being chased is more common in women. Being paralyzed is more common in women. Bugs crawling on you is more common in women. Ew, I've never... Technology malfunction is more common in men. (laughs) I like how that's a nightmare. (laughs) (laughs) My cell phone won't work. (laughs) Just kidding. Going bald is more common in women, but it's a pretty close half and half. Yeah, that's just real life for a lot of men. (laughs) Yeah. Let's see. Percentage of fears that regularly show up in nightmares. So 52.5% of fears are about your general well-being or a life threat. Mm. 16.6% are work or career related. 12.5% are family related. 12.5% are relationship related. 3.4% are otherwise social life related. And 2.5% for health. Which Mm. is also funny. I've had like a lot of health problems. I forget how much I've talked about on this podcast, but like was in and out of the hospital for a while, as was my husband. And just dealing with like a lot of unknowns and tests and pain and like things that when I was awake would really stress me out but I very rarely had any health related dreams or nightmares which is kind of interesting yeah I 
can't say that. Well, yeah, I can't say that I've had any regarding myself. That's interesting, though. Being late for work is more common for people who work in the following industries. Agriculture, construction, education, government and public admin, information <laughs> services, manufacturing, pretty much like all of them, technology, <laughs> retail. Missing a deadline is more common if you're in the broadcasting and journalism profession, publishing, scientific. That makes sense. Or transportation. Coming into work unprepared, legal or mining. Mining. Oh, that's interesting. Getting fired. The only one listed is telecommunications. Oh, that makes me sad. And just some high-level ideas that are just good advice in general to avoid having nightmares and get healthier sleep is to limit your use Mm. of technology before bed, eat a healthy diet, and incorporate exercise into your daily routine. So nothing shocking (laughs) there. (laughs) What about you? Any uh, fun research this week? Well, I started researching prison breaks because of Darren. But then I realized that we had already done that research for a previous episode. Uh, do you remember the nectarine uh, yes, break? Yes, that one yeah, was awesome. Yeah, like, <laughs> painted nectarines. Like, bombs, like bombs or something, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I was like, okay, well I can't do that one. But then I started thinking about how uh, Leia and Elias kept like trying to disguise themselves and like at one point Elias like gets a uniform and like, you know, disguises himself as a prison guard. So I started just researching con artists And then I decided to just go with uh, the story of Frank William Abagnale Jr. from Catch Me If You Can. <laughs> Love it. Have you read the book or, or is it a book? I know it's a movie. I feel like it has to be a book because it was a good movie. So aren't they all based yeah. on books? But I have not read the book, so I don't know if it actually is. But I did see the movie, but it's been a long time. Okay, so I just think this story is hysterical. Um, so he is one of the most notorious imposters. He has assumed eight identities, including an airline pilot, a physician, uh, a U.S. Bureau of Prisons agent, and a lawyer. So his first victim of conning was his father, who gave his son a credit card to pay for gas and a truck to like help him get to his part-time job and so he decided that he was going to use this this credit card to buy tires and batteries and other car related items at gas stations and then he asked the attendants to give him cash in return for them And then apparently his father um, got a bill for $8,400 of like all this stuff that he accumulated on the credit card and then like sold for cash at a higher price. And Abingdale was only 15. Oh my goodness. I just, I love, like, I feel like you have to have so much confidence to pull off a con and that's where I would fall apart. That's what kills me. Like, I don't know how you are that confident that you can pull this off because I would be just quaking in my boots. I'm like the opposite. Even things that I know I'm good at or like know I'm qualified for, I like doubt myself, let alone Mm -hmm. being like, yeah, I'm a doctor. I'm a lawyer. (laughs) Um, So he would also write personal checks on his own overdrawn accounts and then uh, started opening other accounts accounts in different banks and creating new identities so that he could just keep drawing money out indefinitely. He had a bunch of different tactics for defrauding banks, so he would print out his own copies of checks and then deposit them and then uh, tell banks to give him an advance on the cash because of his account balances. And then he would also magnetically print his account number on blank deposit slips and then add them to the stack of real bank slips so that deposits that were written on those slips were automatically entered into his account rather than like the legitimate customer's accounts. Wow. This is crazy. So he also noted at one point that at airline and car rental services, people would, they would drop off daily collections of money in a bag and then deposit them in a drop box at the airport. And so... He one day just put a sign on the on the Dropbox and said, out of service, place deposits with security guard on duty. And then he dressed up like a security guard oh, and collected the money. Goodness. I love that, though. <laughs> I know. And then he later just he later was talking about it. And he was like, I honestly couldn't believe that I got away with that. Because how can a Dropbox be out of service? <laughs> it's a box. I feel like that goes to this whole point about, like, if there are signs or if someone's in uniform, people just, like, don't ask questions. Exactly, yeah. So then he decided to impersonate a pilot to look more legitimate when he cashed his checks. He obtained a uniform by calling the Pan American World Airways, Pan Am, and telling the company that he was a pilot working for them who had lost his uniform while getting it cleaned in his hotel. (laughs) And he just gave them a fake employee ID number. And then he forged a Federal Aviation Administration's pilot license. So between between the ages of six, 
Between the ages of 16 and 18, Abagnale flew more than a million miles on more than 250 flights and flew to 23 countries by deadheading as a pilot. And he was able also to stay at hotels free for this time. And he billed all of his expenses to the airline company. Oh my goodness. And then he, he the only thing he didn't do is he didn't fly on actual Pan Am planes because he believed that that the charade wouldn't work. Hmm. Like, he would be identified by, like, real Pan Am pilots. He was often <laughs> invited by pilots to take controls of the plane in flight. On one occasion, he was offered the courtesy of flying at 30,000 feet. He took the controls and enabled the autopilot, and then he was like, I was very much aware that I had been hands in custody of 140 lives, my own included, because I couldn't fly a kite. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I feel like I would just make up an excuse to be like, oh, no, this is my day off or something. <laughs> <laughs> For 11 months, he impersonated a chief resident pediatrician at a Georgia hospital under the alias of Frank Williams. He just kind of stumbled into this because he was nearly arrested disembarking from a flight in New Orleans. So he moved to Georgia, and then when filling out his rental application, he didn't want to list pilot because he thought the people might check with Pan Am. Mm-hmm. And they would catch up to him, so he just wrote doctor. And then he befriended a real doctor who lived in the same apartment complex and agreed to act as a supervisor of resident interns as a favor until the local hospital could find someone else to take his job. Oh my goodness. He said it was helpful because he was able to get experience. He learned from the interns who were technically under his supervision. And he totally faked his way through all of his duties because the interns were so eager to like show off their skills. <laughs> At one point, though, he was almost exposed when an infant became critically unwell from oxygen deprivation and he didn't understand what was going on. Mm. And he left the hospital when he realized that he could put lives at risk because okay, he good. couldn't respond to these situations. Yeah, I mean, it's like, cool and funny but like it's also terrifying yeah yeah um so then he forged a harvard university law transcript passed the louisiana bar exam that's impressive he legit had to do that yeah got a job at the louisiana state attorney general office at the age of 19, he told a flight attendant that he had gone to Harvard Law and she introduced him to a lawyer friend. And so he was able to get help through this friend to pass his bar exam. So he did fail twice, but he said that he passed on the third try after eight weeks of study. And he basically said, Louisiana at the time allowed you to take the bar over and over as many times as you needed. It was really just a matter of eliminating what you got wrong. <laughs> this is just crazy. So. He, he spent eight months as a fake attorney. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, so eventually he was taken into custody. He managed to escape from police custody twice, once from a taxiing airliner and once from a U.S. federal penitentiary. And this was all before he hit 22. So this is, this is insane. So when he was in the federal detention center in Georgia, the marshal forgot his detention commitment papers and Abignale was... Uh, able to somehow disguise himself as a undercover prison inspector. <laughs> uh, he was given better food and privileges than all the other inmates. And I guess Atlanta had already like exposed accidentally two of their actual undercover federal agents. So it kind of helped him in that regard. So he called a friend who posed as his fiance, slipped him a business card that she had made for him that had like inspector on it and she she basically like gave him this business card and he ended up telling the corrections officers that he was a prison inspector and he handed over the business cards as proof oh my goodness and yeah i know it's just it's absolutely insane i just like can't even so, come up with all these ideas like it's so creative too i know so event so he, he escaped and then he was picked up later and then he had served fewer than seven years when the united states federal government released him on the condition that he would help the federal federal authorities to investigate crimes, um, to like investigate fraud and scam artists. So after his release, he applied for a bunch of jobs and was fired whenever people discovered that he like didn't reveal his criminal past. Mm -hmm. And then finally he approached a, a bank and he was like, listen, I will show you the tricks that people use to defraud banks. 
and he kind of made a living that way for a while. He's currently a consultant and lecturer for the FBI. I love it. That's awesome. (laughs) And he also runs his own company, which is a financial fraud consultant company. I mean, it is a good story. I see why they made it into a movie. I know. I mean, it's just astounding that he was able to get away with all of this. And again, just like having that creativity and the confidence to... It's not that he pulled like a really good con over and over. I mean, he pulled all these different... It's just amazing. I feel like he has to be so smart. I mean, brilliant. Well, honestly, I don't even know if it's that. I think it's just like confidence. He has to have had Mm -hmm. such amazing confidence. Confidence. Yeah. And just the ability to make people feel like he belongs. And like people skills. Yeah. Yeah. And he was a white, a white man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That helps. But yeah. But what a crazy story. I also feel like it takes so much work to trick people. Wouldn't it be easier to just get a job at some point? <laughs> But way less thrilling. I feel like as soon as you've messed up once, though, like you just yeah. gotta keep going. Or you're gonna, you know, they're gonna catch up to you. Go big or go home. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that was my inspiration this week. Love it. That was fun. Should we talk about the next book? Yes, let's do it. We're reading book okay. three again of four, <laughs> so we're officially halfway as of right now. It's another big one, right? I'm sure it is. Uh, I actually don't have this as a hard copy, so I haven't even looked at it. But the third book in the series is called A Reaper at the Gates. The cover again has all three of them, so hopefully we're getting, or at least it looks like it. I think that's Elias, Leia, and Helena on the cover. Okay. Beyond the martial empire and within it, the threat of war looms ever larger. Helena Keela, the blood shrike, is desperate to protect her sister's life and the lives of everyone in the empire. But Emperor Marcus grows increasingly unstable and violent, while Karis Vituria, the ruthless commandant, capitalizes on the emperor's madness to grow her own power. Far to the east, Leia of Sarah knows that the fate of the world lies not in the machinations of the martial court, but in stopping the Nightbringer. But in the hunt to bring him down, Leia faces unexpected threats from those she hoped would help her, and she is drawn into a battle she never thought she'd have to fight. And in the land between the living and the dead, Elias Venturius has given up his freedom to serve a soul catcher. But in doing so, he has vowed himself to an ancient power that demands his complete devotion, even if that means abandoning the woman he loves. Hmm. I feel like that didn't tell us a whole lot of anything. No, I'm really just excited about Helena. <laughs> oh, I love that girl. I would read a whole series just about her. <laughs> Every time they call the commandant by her name, I forget who it I'm is like, for who? a second. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh my god, I'm the same way. The first time I read it, I was like, who is this new character? Yeah. What? Why? Who is she? I hope we um, find her dad again. I think we're, weren't they going to go look for the grandpa at the They're end of this book? They're looking for him. Yep. Quinn, yep. I'm curious about him too. And I want to get more of, yeah, I agree. This will be good. I'm ready to start reading. Okay. Uh, is it, whose turn is it to tell a joke? I honestly, I don't I remember guess? anything ever anymore. I think it's mine. Okay. you told me a bunch of New Year's jokes, I think. Okay. Tell me a joke. Um, okay. Why was the baby jalapeno shivering? Why? He was a little chilly. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Yep. You know, that will also work for the baby habanero, the baby... Oh, yeah, the baby shishito. I'm going to have a lot of fun with this one because I eat a lot of hot peppers. <laughs> That's All right. great. Well, if anyone wants to get in touch with us, you can email us at mnktalkya at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook or Instagram at mnktalkya. Tell us about your most common nightmares and or Ooh, recurring yeah. dreams. And if you've ever done anything on the scale of Frank Abagnale, <laughs> I hope you haven't. <laughs> I pretend I know how to do podcasts after five years of uh, doing them. <laughs> I still have imposter syndrome. <laughs> All, right. All right. Bye, bookworms. Go get a library card. M&K Talk YA is produced and edited by Marissa Snyder and Katie Bradford. Original music composition by Timothy Milkey. Logo design by Marissa Snyder. For updates and extras, visit mnktalkya.com or follow us on Instagram and Facebook. And if you haven't already, please rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. We would like to thank James Tobias, Chad Snyder, Meredith Kelfie, and Michael Howard for all of their support. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.